0: Let us pray. Holy Spirit, in the same power in which you raised Christ from the dead, breathe in and through these scriptures that this word to us might be your living and active word, shaping, convicting, encouraging, molding us, that we might be more faithful followers of you, Jesus Christ the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. It's in his name we make our prayer. Amen. Today is Christ the King Sunday, a day in which we name what is true obviously every day throughout every age and that is that Jesus is Lord, Lord of all, Lord of all of our lives, all of Every nation, all of creation, all of the cosmos. On this Sunday, we we name it in a particular way. We highlight it in a particular way. And, And on this Sunday, we have two scriptures that offer angles at what we mean by the fact that Jesus is Lord. What that lordship, that rulership, that governance looks like. The first one comes from Ezekiel, chapter 34, verses 11 through 16, and then 20 through 24. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the watercourses and in all the inhabited parts of the land. I will feed them with good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and they shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy." I will feed them with justice. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you pushed with the flank and shoulder and butted at the weak animals with your horns until you scattered them far and wide, I will save my flock. And they shall no longer be ravaged. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them he shall feed them and be their shepherd and i the lord will be their god and my servant david shall be prince among them i the lord have spoken the word of our lord thanks be to god and from the new testament we hear from ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23 And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power? God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few months ago I was reading this article in the New Yorker about this conversation that's going on among a certain group in our society about apocalyptic possibilities. Some of them, they talk openly about the effects of social media on our society and how it seems to engender fear even more quickly and, and what happens if a whole society gets wound up in so much fear that something unbridled breaks out. Others, others talk about what happens if, if people start to lose faith in, in, in how the country works if, if, if we lose faith in the currency, or we lose faith in the peaceful transfer of power, we lose faith in, in the news, or we lose faith in the court system, or we lose faith in the police, or we lose faith in the military, I mean, what could that unleash? What if power shifts? What if the current structures fail? What if someone else gets in power? what if there's no one in power? What if a nuclear bomb hits? And these what if conversations are happening, the article highlights in particular among some of the wealthiest people in New York City and Silicon Valley. One of the Silicon Valley executives who was interviewed for this particular article talked about this conversation, how it's just more and more frequent in these circles. And he estimates maybe about 50% or so of folks living in Silicon Valley have what is called apocalyptic or apocalypse insurance. And what this means for some is that they, for, they bought some foreign land or a home to which they can fly to uh, if need be. For many, it involves purchasing a sizable bunker somewhere underground in the U.S. with all kinds of supplies and vehicles and weapons and security guards. I have a helicopter gassed up at all times in an underground bunker with an air filtration system, one executive said and a lot of folks do not not only have the air filtration system, they, they've chosen light fixtures that will mirror the reality of sunlight. So they won't have that. They've, they've painted walls with murals that look like landscapes they really appreciate. They have extra prescriptions filled for their glasses and contacts. So they don't go without that. What, what strikes me about this story is that these are really, right, some of the most creative, problem-solving, determined, confident minds. They founded many businesses and organizations we all know of and use. And of course, on top of that, these are these are easily some of the most financially secure people, not only in the world but but really throughout all of history. I mean, their grandchildren, for a long time, will be fine. And yet they are so very anxious, openly so about this conversation. Anxious about instability, anxious about an uprising from within or from without. Anxious about collapse. What if, for all of the power and all of the stability, why is there so much anxiety? I mean, gosh, even if we had a sliver of some of that money, that would make us less anxious about them, some things, right? Right? If we had just a sliver of that kind of power to get a few things done we need to to make happen in our lives, in this city, in this church, that put us at a little more ease, right? If we just had a sliver of some of those connections, some of those resources, we'd breathe a little easier, right? In Ephesians, Paul addresses the church at Ephesus. It's a church with reason for anxiety, the church there is a minority religion with a whole bunch of skeptical people watching. The church is surrounded by the rising threat of real persecution, in some ways has already started to, to take root. The church is located there in one of the most cosmopolitan pagan worshipping cities in the entire empire, where it's, it's unlawful and certainly looked down upon not to be worshipping uh, multiple gods. The church has reason to feel unsafe, to feel without power, uh, to not be settled with a whole bunch of peace, to tiptoe. And actually, Paul does give them a resource for living faithfully, fully amidst this anxiety. But it is not more money or, or positions of influence or in the government or, or more resources. The gift Paul gives the church is perspective. We stayed in Afton, Virginia a couple nights last month. And at one point we did this, hump, this trail, a humpback trail. A very steep climb. Maybe you've, some of you have done it and you get to the top and it overlooks the whole region. And, and if you've done the hike, then you know at the top you're overlooking in every direction these beautiful rolling hills of green forest and the vineyards. Just a remarkable expanse of life. Well, in Ephesians chapter one, verses fifteen to twenty three paul is is in many ways basically taking the church up humpback trail and showing them reality as it truly is for as far as the eye can see and further and that reality Paul wants to show the church can really be summed up in three words: Jesus is Lord verses fifteen to twenty three they're actually one long meandering sentence. In the original Greek, it's as, as if the truth Paul is trying to express can't be captured in sort of pithy bullet points. Jesus is Lord is this truth that spreads and covers and winds all along and around and through all of the terrain. It is expansive. It is beautiful. It is full. It can never be fully comprehended or captured For in declaring plainly that Jesus is Lord, Paul's making a few fundamental assumptions about reality and how it is covered. He's saying that Jesus, who is himself love, Jesus has all power, all authority, all dominion over every single ruler, every single leader, every single government, nation, president, business, individual, family, church, situation he's declaring that profound benevolence governs all things in this age and in every age and that all things ultimately are being conformed so that his kingdom of love and justice and life is made known fully on earth as it is in heaven profound benevolence is in charge Paul goes further and says that this Jesus who is Lord is seated at the right hand of God. Seated, settled, it's a done deal. Paul names in this, in this imagery the certitude that good will win, that love will win, that Jesus' Lordship is not going to be overthrown or thwarted or cut short and so at a primal level, it is impossible to grow overly anxious about what might happen to the church, to the city, to the nation, to the world, to our company. At a primal level, it's impossible to believe that the shoe is eventually going to drop and all kinds of bad things are going to overwhelm and overcome. And bad things may come, but most definitely not prevail because at a most basic level, what Jesus' is Lord declares as that love and justice and life are seated and situated and certain. Ultimately. And not only does Paul declare that Jesus is Lord, that's the seated, basic, fundamental truth of reality. Paul then reminds the church that God has given us. Verse 19, immeasurable immeasurable greatness of power. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that church is at work in you. So Paul, in essence, not only draws us to look up at this wide vista of truth that Jesus is Lord. But then Paul invites the church seated upon that ledge, considering the beauty of that truth and all of its implications, to then inhale deeply the Holy Spirit air. That we might know for ourselves the power that creates all that, that sustains all that, that redeems all that, that power is alive in us. The Silicon Valley people are not entirely off base with their concerns. We live in anxious times. We don't know when the next shooting happens or bombing will take place on the streets or yet another house of worship We don't know about our health tomorrow. We don't know about our job come next year. We don't know how it will work out for us or for our children or our grandchildren with this or that. There is much about which we can and we do. Grow anxious. And I think one of the most common temptations in the face of anxiety is to build bunkers to situate ourselves as far from the fearful stuff as possible and, and just sort of place ourselves inside the walls of our hobby or just live inside the walls of our job where we know what we're doing and we can at least control this or, or, or live inside the walls of drink or drug or live inside the walls of a certain way of thinking or live inside the walls of our shopping or live inside the walls of the church. Surely the church will not change even if the rest Goes in so many directions. Sociologists they'll talk about how in times of heightened anxiety for, for people, groups, or just even individual, that is when we are most prone to nostalgia. Not that nostalgia is all bad, but in times when our lives or society are particularly anxious, feel particularly out of control or fearful, that is when they say people try and hold most tightly to some vision. Of yesterday. That is when people are most prone to build a bunker and then they'll paint the murals inside that of what family Christmas looked like 20 years ago, what church looked like 50 years ago, what the country looked like 30 years ago. Anxiety makes us want to build bunkers for safety, for escape. If we have known in our own lives anxiety in recent days, what's the bunker? We typically go to. If we as a society have breathed air of anxiety recently, what what are the bunkers the church is susceptible to building? Paul does not tell the church situated in cosmopolitan Ephesus to hunker down or bunker down or weather the storm. Grab what you can because you don't know. Paint murals of, of yesterday when God gave you a promised land. Paul will do nothing to pull them out of their current Reality. Because the truth is an escape from reality is certain to lead paradoxically to more anxiety, not less. It's, it's a bit like stuffing down feelings, right? They still come out in all these small ways. And, and you can only escape them from so long before they, they blow up and the truth just needs to be confronted. Escaping just lets the anxiety brew and grow. So Paul doesn't offer an escape, nor does Paul hand them any extra money or extra, again, resources or positions of power because, as the ultra-rich know, these even never seem sufficient to address the root issue. What Paul does is reframe their current reality in light of God's eternal reality. Let's, Let's hike up Humpback Trail and get a view of reality and breathe in the air of truth. Would not the church know profound renewal simply by regularly situating ourselves before that vista in all its beauty and inhaling that air? Perhaps we're here today because, quite frankly, we need the Holy Spirit to drag us out of a bunker or out of an anxiety, out of a fear, out of news media inundations that keep us feeling that very Frequently, we just need to be pulled into the truth about reality. We need to breathe some clean air. Jesus is good, Jesus is in charge, and his life courses through your being. And yet, as needful as Paul's invitation to the mountaintop reality is, as needful as it is for us to inhale deeply, regularly, that vista that air we also need ezekiel's description of the lordship of god the one i read from chapter 34 just a bit ago paul right describes jesus as lord in this powerful settled seated situated right hand of god way it anchors us ezekiel describes the same lord but describes his lordship in this intimate active way Listen for the verbs of what the Lord says the Lord is going to do and eventually we see embodied fully in Jesus Christ. The Lord searches for the sheep, seeks them out, rescues them, gathers them, feeds them, makes them to lie down on green pastures, brings them back, binds up the injured, strengthens the weak, gives justice to the fat sheep who got fat withholding from the weak. What you have is this God in continual motion with active verbs on behalf of those who are lost, those in need of rescue, those without a home, those without food, those without rest or reprieve, those bleeding, those wounded, those without strength. And we say, wait, when I sit upon this rock and look out at that vista of reality and the, the beauty that Jesus is Lord, I don't know if I see all that. I mean, I breathe in this wonderful air. I do take hope that Jesus truly reigns. But where's all this wondrous activity? Where's all this great motion? True. You have to walk into the woods to appreciate just how alive that place is. As we hike down back trail. I, I paused at one point and I looked closely at this leaf-covered ground. There were worms moving along. A little row of ants marching over here. I could hear an animal softly rustling somewhere in the distance. birds overhead. I mean, overlooking the trees from the top of that hike and so forth was, was a beautiful, quiet experience. But when you get right into the trees themselves, the place is teeming with all kinds of quiet, scurrying life. And of course, these animals, these insects, these birds are an ecosystem whose, whose movements and ways of being are, are central to the flourishing of that whole area. And honestly, if I didn't step into the woods and didn't slow long enough to really listen, I would have walked right by a profound amount of active life all around me. Even in my noticing, I know I didn't notice so much more that is always there. If Paul invites us to the top of humpback trail ezekiel invites us into the forest of reality and ezekiel invites now listen watch the lord is on the move and be sure to peek under the leaves of the newspaper and the television the the, the front page isn't always going to tell you just how much life is scurrying in the hidden and small places check the mangers check the marginalized and listen and watch what do we see? What do we hear when we lean in and we look for scurrying, busy, active, gathering, feeding, wound care that God is doing around us? I wonder, as we lean in, do we see one another? Do we see ourselves in some of that scurrying, active work? Because the truth is, we, the church, are the body of God on earth, as Paul puts it at the end of Ephesians. We are the conduit through which the act of good lordship of Jesus is made known in the forest. All those active verbs, action verbs of Ezekiel, those are the church's verbs as conduits of God's lordship. Eugene Peterson, he writes, the church is the core element In the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the kingdom of God in this world. If you want to see God's active seeking after the lost, God actively providing a spiritual and a physical home for those without. You want to see what it looks like for God to provide a banquet for those hungering, a banquet of spiritual food for those So full of themselves and yet so empty. You want to see what it looks like for God to dress the wounds of those injured by war and injured internally. If you want to see God governing and leading, look at the active, engaged church whose mission it is to live into these words. And no, the church often does not make the front page for this kind of work, but, but, but the church having breathed the good air of the Holy Spirit deeply on the ledge. You better believe the church is, is busy and active and exhaling in ways that contribute to the thriving of the whole ecosystem. So what is our particular role in exhaling the life of Jesus? Which of those verbs in Ezekiel is, is, is a primary manner through which our gifts get exercised in the forest? The truth is, all of us are facing anxieties, individually, culturally. And anxiety always tempts us to want to escape from reality, to manufacture our own safe space, our own walled-in existence with our favorite people and vistas and ways of being and thinking. And so anxiety chokes and kills and destroys the church and its mission because it, it narrows us into a corner where we actually never feel safe enough. It keeps us from ever getting to the vista of reality. Breathing that air. And and then of course the painful irony is there. Right there in the the forest where we're supposed to be scurrying and active and, and exhaling. We've built artificial bunkers. And so on this Christ the King Sunday. The call is for the church in many ways. To take a hike. To get again to that vista of truth. That Jesus is Lord. And inhale all of its goodness and implications. To sit there. But then don't stay too long, as if we can just fold our hands and and trust God will just do everything. No, we ache for the broken parts of this world, and so we stand back up, filled with the Holy Spirit resurrection air, and we head into the forest. And so for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of the healing of the ecosystem, may the church hike faithfully. Amen.